Bibles today, if you would please, to the book of Haggai. We're leaving our study of 1 Corinthians, and we'll come back to that next week. But I'd like you to turn to the Old Testament book of Haggai. Some of you may have a little bit of trouble finding that. Remember, I gave you that exercise last week. I said, uh, spend the whole week trying to find this so you wouldn't have so much trouble today. But if you're having trouble, go to the very end of the Old Testament. That's the book of Malachi. Back up one book, that's Zechariah, and one book before that, and you come to the book of Haggai. So if you'll turn there to chapter 2, if you would, please. Haggai is classified as one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and that doesn't mean that what he had to say wasn't very important, but it means that he didn't write as extensively as Jeremiah and Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah, who are called the major prophets of the Old Testament. Haggai lived about 500 times, 500 years before the time of Christ, and he prophesied during the time that the Jews were rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I chose the text today because of a statement that Haggai makes in the second chapter, verse number 7. Here he writes the words of God, and he says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. On this 4th of July weekend, I think this is a very good text for us to study because this is a prophecy that Haggai gave concerning the coming of Jesus Christ. And he calls him the desire of all nations. Now, you've probably noticed that it doesn't appear that there are very many people at all who actually desire Christ. How is it that Haggai could actually call Jesus, prophesying about him, the desire of all nations? Well, I want to talk about that to you today. If you'd stand with me, please. We're reading from God's Word in Haggai chapter 2. We're going to read the first nine verses of this chapter. Haggai chapter 2, verse number 1. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and unto the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? What he's speaking about there is the second temple that the Jews were rebuilding in Jerusalem. He says, Who, who among you saw this house in its first glory? Verse number 4. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today once again for this great country in which we live. Today, Lord, as we think about this text, as we think about Jesus being the desire of all nations, show us today, Lord, how he truly is all our desire. All of our hope and our trust should be stayed upon him. 
blessed in this message today, and we give you the praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite preachers is a 17th century Puritan by the name of John Flavel. John Flavel uh, wrote many or preached many different sermons. In fact, I have a collection of his entire works. And one of my favorites among all the sermons that he, that he preached or the collections of sermons that he preached are two books called The Method of Grace and The Fountain of Life. If you ever have a chance to read those, they're very good. You ought to read them. In The Method of Grace, John Flavel ended many of his sermons with this phrase, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. When we were studying the tabernacle, I ended many of my sermons using that very same phrase. But John Flavel has a sermon on this text that we just read in the book of Haggai, here in verse number 7, where he calls his sermon, Christ the desire of all nations. Sometime if you have an opportunity, you might get your hands on a copy of that sermon and read that and then compare it to what I have to say today. But let's give a little bit of background to what the scriptures are talking about here in the book of Haggai. Uh, Those of you that were here for the Nehemiah study, uh, you're somewhat familiar with this already, but Nehemiah is a book about the Judean refugees who returned from captivity in Babylon, and they came back to uh, Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls. Several decades prior to that, the Jews had returned to, to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. This magnificent temple that Solomon built was destroyed in 586 B.C. The Babylonians came and they conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and they destroyed that magnificent temple that Solomon had built. All of the furnishings that were there, all of the vessels of gold that were in the temple, the Babylonians carried all of that away and so the temple was destroyed. Well, in chapter 1 of Haggai, Haggai is chastising the people because they've returned to rebuild this house of God, this this second temple, to replace the one that Solomon built. But he chastises them because instead of building that temple first, they decided to build their own houses. We come here to the second chapter, and this is about a month after the temple had been completed. And here we find the people very discouraged. They had just built this second temple, and as they looked at it, there is no way that it could compare to the temple that Solomon had built. As I said, all the vessels of gold and all the furnishings have been carried away. The people at this time are living in terrible poverty. They don't have the resources. It's impossible for them to put back all of those things that, temple had put, uh, that, that Solomon had built in that first temple. So in their despair, Haggai speaks to them and he gives them the word of the Lord. And God's word says here that another temple is coming. Another temple would be built in a later day, and this temple would far surpass in beauty any temple that had ever been built before it. And of course, that includes the temple of Solomon. Now, what Haggai is doing here, he's actually looking beyond the first advent of Christ. Now, he's not talking about when Jesus came into the world and was born in a manger. But instead, he's looking far beyond that, and he's looking to the second coming of Christ. And this is the time when Jesus Christ will come, and he'll set his feet upon the earth, and he'll rule and reign in Jerusalem in a millennial kingdom. Now, during this discourse, God says to the people, the desire of the nations will come, and he says, I will fill this house with glory. The desire of nations, he's speaking of, is Jesus Christ. 
I want us to think today for a little while on the subject, is Christ your desire? Here, he's called the desire of nations. Now, first of all today, let's talk about the reality of the desire. If you look at verse number three, there are three questions that are asked. Question number one, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? In other words, who among you is still, that's living today? How many of you saw that temple of Solomon? How many of you remember that? Question number two, and how do you see it now? That's the second temple that they built. And third question, is it not in your eyes of it in comparison as nothing? There is no way that this temple that they had built could compare to the one that Solomon built. So the despair of these people was centered in this longing for that first temple, that first temple that so far surpassed in beauty this one that they had just built. And so here these next verses are encouragement that whatever this temple is right now, the temple they had just built, whatever it stands for, there is coming another temple that would be on their wildest imaginations. There is coming a temple that would, that would be so great that it will, very, it will speak of the very majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is going to come back to this earth again. He'll set his feet upon this earth and he'll rule and he'll reign in that millennial kingdom. You know, there are too many times when we as Christians were so prone to look at outward things. We look at things that we gather for ourselves. We look at external things. Those things dazzle us rather than the things that God or, or things that would bring the most glory to God. Now, I'm thankful today that we have a building in which to worship we can come here today, we can sit in this place, air-conditioned. It's a little warm up here right now for me. But we're, we're in an air-conditioned building. We have nice chairs that we can sit on. We have a great place to worship. But there are many people that are worshiping in places today all around where they don't have a beautiful building like we have. They're in storefronts, they're in warehouses, and they're meeting there as they worship God. But I want to point out to you today that, that the place that you worship does not at all diminish the worship of God itself. The most important thing, is this a place where God meets with us? Is this a place where the Holy Spirit has come? No fancy chandeliers and padded pews and, and fancy fixtures in a church, all of those things are very nice. Those are beautiful things to have. But a church can have all of those things. It can have the stained glass windows. It can have the beautiful woodworking all of these beautiful things, but it can actually be a cold, dead, empty place if the Holy Spirit is not there. So no matter where we, where we meet, if the Holy Spirit is not present with us, then our worship is vain. And so we can have everything in the church just as beautiful as money can buy. We can spend all the money that we can on furnishings, but the thing that money cannot buy is a church where the Holy Spirit meets with God's people. I'll take the Holy Spirit and his presence with us any time over the place that we meet. So the blessed hope then of all who know Jesus Christ is not in this building that we have. It's not that. It's the hope that the desire of all nations will come. Our desire is Jesus Christ. God's people in all of the world, in all places, in all nations of the world are looking for that time when Jesus does come back when Jesus does set his feet upon the earth, and then all of our eyes are going to be drawn towards him, he's the coming king, and the scripture says, every eye shall behold him. I hope today that you're looking for the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
Sometimes we do get the feeling that, that we're the very last ones who are actually holding out for God. I mean, there's so much wickedness in the world today, and there's so many churches that have abandoned the Bible and abandoned the teaching of God's Word. So many people have turned away from the Lord that we think, well, we're the last ones standing. We're the only ones who actually believe anymore. But God's Word shows us and it assures us that God has His redeemed people out of every kindred, every tribe, every nation, every people upon this earth, black and white, red and yellow. God has His people from all walks of life. And there are millions of people today throughout the world who are looking for Jesus to come back. So what is the reality of the desire for Christ? Why is Jesus called the desire of all nations? Well, I think we can say, first of all, he is the desire because he is the remedy for sin. Jesus is the answer to man's sin's problem. See, Jesus is the only one who can, and can cure that curse that was placed upon the world. When Adam sinned, when he fell, God placed a, a curse upon the world. And Jesus Christ is the one who is appointed by God to come to this earth and to take care of that sin problem. And we notice here that he's not just a cure for the sins of Jewish people. Now, we're reading here about Haggai. We're reading about the Jews in the Old Testament. And I don't really know if, the, if Haggai, as he was speaking these words of God, or the Jewish people when they heard this, if they really understood exactly what this meant. Now, here are people that had their temple destroyed. They had the walls of their city destroyed. They were carried away captivi- into captivity into a foreign land. And now to think that, that Babylonians who had done this for them, can they be saved? And then we think about the traditional enemies of God's people. Down through the years, it's the Romans, it's the Greeks, and many different people who have persecuted Jewish people. Is it possible that God, that Jesus Christ, is the Savior of those people too? But the Bible calls him the desire of all nations. And this is why the Apostle John could write in 1 John, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Jews at Jesus' time and of the Apostles' time, they were aghast at such a proposition that Jesus would be a Messiah for all people. Even Peter. Now, Peter, who was among the, the inner circle of Jesus' disciples, he didn't understand this. Do you, do you remember that vision that came to Peter in the night where Peter uh, had to have a special vision in order to be convinced that he was to preach to Gentiles? I don't have time to go into that whole story, but God gave him a vision of birds and animals and all different kinds of reptiles and beasts that came down, from, uh, came down out of heaven in a sheet let down to the earth and Peter, being a good Jew, he was not going to touch any of those animals that were in there. He was under the strict dietary laws of the Jews, and so he wasn't about to touch anything that was there. But there was a voice that came in that vision that said, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Some of those animals were unclean. Jews weren't supposed to eat those animals. And so Peter said, I can't do that. I can't touch anything that's unclean. And the voice said to him, What God has cleansed. You're not to call that unclean. And really what that was, that was a metaphor. And it said that God was going to save people from all nations of the earth. Not just Jewish people. And that's the reality of Christ. He's the remedy for the sins of all people. And that's why Jesus should be desired. He's the only one who can take away our sins. Then we can also say in the reality of the desire that he is the resource of satisfaction. 
You know, I, I could say that Jesus is the only one who can satisfy your soul, and that would be absolutely true. I love the song that says, I am satisfied, I am satisfied with Jesus. But the question comes to me as I think of Calvary, is my master satisfied with me? I can tell you today that I am absolutely satisfied with Jesus. But I want to talk about this in a different way, because Jesus is actually the only one who can satisfy God. Jesus is the only one who can satisfy God's justice. We're going to talk about this a little bit more in a few minutes, but the Bible teaches that all of us are sinners. The Scripture says, For there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Every morning when you go out and and you look at the sun as it rises, you're convinced that, that that sun has all the energy that's required, all of the energy and the light that's needed to, to take care of, of this entire world. We're all convinced that the sun can, can do that. We've experienced that. But do you know that the Bible teaches us that Jesus Christ is the Son of Righteousness? And in Jesus Christ, there is redemption, there is justification, there is sanctification, there is salvation, and there is enough in Jesus Christ for the salvation of every single person in this world. You can take all the sins that ever have been committed since the beginning of time, take all of the murders, take all the thefts, take all the rapes, take all of the pride and the hatred of men, wrap all of that together, no matter how atrocious all of those sins are, put them all together and the righteousness of Jesus Christ far exceeds them all. The song says, Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Well, Christ is the satisfaction for sin for all people who trust in Him. And friends, there is nothing else that will satisfy God. Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ will ever satisfy God Almighty. And I want to tell you something, that it's blasphemy to suggest that there's anything else that could satisfy God. There is no sacrament that will satisfy God. Baptism doesn't satisfy Him. Doing a rosary, that's not going to satisfy God. Priestly absolution never satisfies God. The only thing that satisfies Him is Jesus Christ, and it's blasphemy to suggest that anything could do what only Jesus Christ can do. God sent Christ into the world to do what no man could ever do. He came to satisfy God's justice. Now, do you see the reality of that? Jesus Christ must be the desire of all nations because he's the only resource of satisfaction. Now, let me tell you thirdly that he's the reason for separation. You know, there's a remarkable characteristic about Jesus. Many of them, of course, but when Jesus is preached... A remarkable thing is that he has a uniform effect on every person who believes. Atheists can't explain that. Philosophers can't explain it. Anthropologists can't explain that. Psychiatrists can't explain it. Science will tell you that religion is a superstition of people. Science says that people believe these things because they have a lack of education. Ted Turner said that Christians are losers. Let me... Let me have them explain this. How does the preaching and the belief of Christ have a uniform effect on everyone who hears and believes? How is it that no matter what your background, no matter what nation that you live in, no matter what culture you come from, that when you trust Jesus Christ, the very same effect is produced in all people? How does that happen? I mean, what what happens? I mean, a person turns from his sin, he turns to live in holiness... 
There's a reality of godliness that takes place. A person begins to separate himself from the culture that's around him. People believe in Jesus Christ and they give up all their superstitions. They give up their idol worship. They give up bad habits. They give up lustful desires. How is it that that happens in all parts of the world, no matter where Jesus Christ is preached? It has a uniform effect on all people. Recently, I heard a story that was told by James Montgomery Boyce. And uh, he was relating how that there was a conference where Christians from all different kinds of ethnic backgrounds came together and met together for this, for this conference. There was a man who stood up to speak, and, and he was from a tribe in South America. There was another man that was sitting there listening to him today, that day, and he was from a tribe in Africa. Well, this man from South America, he was from a tribe that formerly had killed missionaries. And he was a very brutal person. Uh, he had these tattoos that were all over him. He had, had uh, the piercings that this tribe had. And this man from Africa was sitting there listening to him speak. And this man from South America, from this tribe down in the jungles, he began to explain how that he had trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior and how that had made a change in his life. Well, this man from South Africa was listening to him. Now, he couldn't understand his tongue. He had to have an interpreter explain it to him. But as he was listening to that man from South America, this man from Africa got a big smile across his face. He jumped up and he ran to the platform and he embraced that man. And he did that because he recognized that the very same thing had happened to him. Thousands of miles apart, didn't know each other, had no idea what the other one was doing, and yet the very same gospel had the same effect in both of those men. How does that happen? Well, it only happens because truly Jesus Christ is the desire of all nations. And so my experience with Christ is the very same thing as your experience. My experience with Jesus is the same as the Ricos who come from the Philippines. It's the same as Catherine who comes from Korea. If Joseph was here, it's the same as his, and he comes from India. It's the same as an African, the same as the Chinese, same as the Japanese. Our experience is exactly alike because the same gospel that saved me is the same gospel that saves you. Our experience is exactly alike. And what does the Scripture say? For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. That is the reality of Jesus. He is the desire of all nations. He produces godliness and separation for every person who calls upon him. And so every time that we send a missionary out to any part of the world, that missionary preaches the very same gospel that saved me. And every person who hears the message is saved in exactly the same way that I'm saved. And so the gospel has a uniform effect upon all men. There's a common bond that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, fourthly, let me point out the reality of the desire, because he is the ruler and the sovereign. When Haggai says he's the desire of all nations, there's an implication in that statement that Christ has a worldwide kingdom. Now, it seems by looking at Sonoma County, looking at California today, we would think, well, the kingdom of Christ can't be very wide because Christians are so far outnumbered here. There aren't very many true believers. But do you know what Jesus said? Jesus said there is a vast multitude in the world in this kingdom. 
He said, And I say unto you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know, that's something for all of us to take heart. Take heart that God has his people in all kingdoms of the world. And so again, I say, we may think that we're the only ones left. We might think we're the only ones standing for Christ. But the very fact that Jesus has not come back, that is testimony. It's evidence that there are more people that God is going to call. And friend, this world will not end until every last one of God's elect comes to the realization that they have been ordained by God to eternal life from the foundation of the world. Now that's what Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9. The context in which Peter writes 2 Peter 3 verse 9 is the second coming of Christ. He says in this chapter, he says that many will scoff, and he says many will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is this Christ who said that he's coming back? And then Peter says in 2 Peter 3 verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now what Peter is saying there is that Jesus is biding his time. Jesus is waiting. God is long-suffering to usward. Now you only have to read 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 to discover who Peter is talking about. It says there, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you, and peace be multiplied. There we find that Peter is writing to God's elect. Now where do we notice that they are? Are all of God's elect in Jerusalem? Are all of them in Israel? Are all of God's people in one country or one city of the world? No, Peter says they're scattered throughout the world. And Christ is not coming back until every last one that God intends to save is saved. Not until God fills up the full complement of his people that Christ has chosen from the foundation of the world. So he's the ruler and he's the sovereign. He's the desire of all nations. He says in Isaiah, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. That's the reality of the desire. Christ is the remedy for sin. He's the resource for satisfaction. He's the reason for separation. And he's the ruler and the sovereign. Now let's go on secondly, and let's talk about the reasons to desire. Now, Everything that we've discussed so far, in one sense, we could say is a reason to desire Christ. But I'd like for us to look a little bit further. America is just one nation upon hundreds of nations on the earth. But whether you're an American, you're Russian, Chinese, Arabian, it doesn't matter. We all fit into this category. We must all desire Christ because first of our universal condition. Because of our universal condition. I don't know about you, but I'm proud to be an American. I hope that you are. I believe in hot dogs. I believe in Ford trucks. Not Chevy trucks. I believe in Ford trucks. I believe in apple pie. You know, we Americans are affluent. All of us are red, white, and blue prejudiced. But one thing that we have in common with every other nation, and it doesn't matter how rich and powerful they are, no matter how poor and insignificant they are, we are all in a sinful condition. And so the place of our birth, our heritage, our ancestry, that doesn't matter. We're not above any other nation in the world. 
In Romans, Paul writes, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise, for we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. And so every single person is in the exact same condition. Now, there is a reason to desire Christ because Paul does not leave us in that hopeless condition of Romans chapter 3. Instead, you can go over and you can read Romans chapter 5. And there he says, And not as it was by one that sinned, speaking of Adam, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many be made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now what Paul is explaining there is that by the sin of Adam, every person in every nation is a sinner. Every person in every country of this world has been polluted by sin just by virtue of being a member of this human race. And unless your nationality makes you something other than human, then you are in this exact condition. All of us are in the same boat. But he explains here that as by Adam's sin, judgment came upon all people, he says, so by Christ, Christ's gift of righteousness brings justification of life upon all people. Now, let me explain something here because I don't want you to misunderstand this. When Adam sinned, all became sinners. And so all of us are in that one class called sinners. When Christ came to die for our sins, then all, he, he died for all who would be made righteous. And so all who believe are in another classification. We receive the justification of life. And so Christ is to be desired because he's the only one that can move you out of one class into the other class. Christ is the only one who can bring you out from under that condemnation of sin and give you the justification of eternal life. You know, I believe that eternal life is the quest for all people. I don't care where you come from, where you live. I mean, I think everybody wants, wants to live forever, don't we? I, mean, I don't know of anybody who wants to die. People in America have a desire to live People in the darkest jungles of Borneo have a desire to live. And everybody in between those two extremes, we have a desire to live. So that's a quest for all people. You may remember in the history of America, there was a, a man in the 16th century by the name of Ponce de Leon. Remember, he came to America and came to Florida looking for a fountain of youth. And that's a desire for all people. I mean, he wanted to live forever, so he, he looked for a fountain of youth. Well, obviously, we know that we can't live forever, not in a human sense. All people die. But one of the things we try to do is we try to look young. We try to preserve our youthfulness if we can. So if we can't live forever, then we'd like to be well-preserved. One of the greatest things that the purposes of the cosmetic industry is, and that accounts for billions of dollars a year, is to make people look and feel younger. So husbands, when your wife is painting up her face... She's not getting ready to do a rain dance. Oh, sometimes she may be on the warpath, but she's, you know, the reason that she puts all that makeup on is because she 
wants to be that young, voluptuous woman that first attracted you. And so that's the purpose of that. Well, there is a sense in which we want to live younger. We're trying to preserve this. We want youthfulness and longevity. Well, if people would only realize that the answer to immortality is Jesus Christ, that's where you find, find life. I mean, that's where you live forever. Romans says, To him who by patience, continuance, patient continuance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's what Christ is. He's the key to our immortality. And so if there's a reason to seek him, that's one of the best, isn't it? Seek Christ because that's where you find eternal life, immortality. And when you find life in Christ, when you reach this immortality, you don't have all the restrictions that you have in this life. Every person in every nation all across this globe is looking for that answer for eternal life, and the only answer is Jesus Christ. And then there's also reason to desire him not just because of our universal condition, but also because of our universal condemnation. In those verses that we read in Romans 5, it said that judgment came by Adam for all men under condemnation. The Scripture says the wage of sin is death, and the condemnation for all people without Jesus Christ is eternal death in the fires of hell. But Jesus Christ came to give us a way to pass from that condemnation uh, of, of death in hell, into the everlasting justification of life in Christ. Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So Jesus is the desire of all nations because of our universal condemnation, because of this universal obligation of every person to punishment. And the only way that that can be relieved is through Jesus. So when Haggai spoke these words, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. Did he really understand what all of that meant? Did he really understand that Christ is a Savior for all people? Christ is the answer for every person in every nation. He's the desire of all nations. So we have this reality of desire, we have the reason for desire, but also there is the realization of the desire. Now let me ask you three quick questions about your desire. How do you determine if Christ is really your desire? First of all, first question, are you enthusiastic about Christ? What is it that's most important to you? In America we say our motto is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How is it that you're going about pursuing happiness? You see, if your enthusiasm is all about the things of the world and you put everything else in front of Christ, then there's no no way that you could say that Christ is your desire. There's some people that like to put their financial success up front, and so they want financial success without giving anything to God. There's some people that would say, well, I'd really like to have peace in my home, but they're not willing to have a devotion in their home. They're not willing to talk about Christ in their home. There's some people would say, you know, we'd really like to have the greatest choir at Brian Baptist Church, but they want to do that without having to go to choir practice. There's some people that want a church that's filled up, every seat, every seat in the auditorium filled, but they're not willing to do anything themselves to see that happen. Friends, if your enthusiasm is for worldly pursuits, 
If everything that you talk about and things that take your time and all of your thoughts and all of your treasure on other things, then you can't say that Christ is truly your desire. Second question I want to ask you is how much effort do you put into God's work? So you say today, well, yes, I I do desire Christ. Then what do you do to obtain his fellowship? Are you a person who prays and do you seek fellowship with God and Jesus Christ in prayer? How many times during the week do you take your Bible and do you sit down and you read Scripture and commune with God as you read his word? What kinds of things would you give up in order to serve Christ? You know, I was talking about choir just a moment ago. I mean, who, who here would give up something else that you're doing to come and sing in our choir? What would you give up in order to be a teacher in Pioneer Club? What, what of your daily activities would you have to give up in order to be a teacher in Sunday school? You know, there are a lot of Christians who have their pet sins, and their pet sins restrict them from having a part of God's service. So what are you actually willing to give up? How much effort do you put in it to really call Christ your desire? And then the third question I want to ask you is, how effective are you in God's work? See, one who desires Christ cannot run hot and cold. Every day that you live is a day of testimony for a Christian. And there are many Christians who come to church and they get stirred up by a message that they hear. I mean, they get all excited about that and they're ready to go out there and, as we say, charge hell with a water pistol. They're all excited about it. But then the feeling wears off in a short amount of time and then they have to have another sermon to come and thaw them out And so they're ready to do something for God again. You can't run hot and cold. You have to be consistent. How effective that you are for Christ is directly connected to your consistency for Christ. So true desire for Jesus lasts day after day. And it goes through good times and bad. And so the question is, do you have enough desire to live for him? And what Haggai is telling us here, Christ is coming back. One of these days, Christ is going to appear in the clouds. And every ear of those that are dead and in the graves, and every ear who is living is going to, that believes in Jesus Christ, will hear that trumpet sound. Those of us that are living, the Scripture says, we're going to be transformed, we're going to be translated in the moment in a twinkling of an eye. We're going to be caught up with Jesus in the clouds. I don't know if America's going to be here when Jesus comes back. If he comes soon, then perhaps we will be. But no matter how near or how far his coming is, he will always remain the desire of all nations. Now, these people in Haggai's time, they were very disappointed in that temple that they built. It didn't have the beauty, didn't have the glory, didn't have the furnishings, didn't have the gold of Solomon's temple. But God has promised every one of us that when Jesus comes back, what he will bring will far surpass in beauty anything that we can possibly imagine. I want to promise you today that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed again. Is Christ your desire? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you once again today, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. He is truly the desire of all nations. I ask you, Lord, that you might speak to someone here today, maybe someone who doesn't know Jesus and really doesn't understand why we talk about Jesus being our desire. It's not until the Holy Spirit opens their heart to the gospel of Christ and they trust, they believe, 
that they'll really understand why we say that we desire Christ so much. And then for Christians that are here today, we become complacent, we become apathetic. I ask you, Lord, to stir our hearts up as your people that we might truly put in all the effort and have all the enthusiasm that we need to have to work for you. Bless our people in this time of invitation. Draw someone today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.